Hello, everyone, and welcome to this edition of the NASM Master Instructor Roundtable. I'm Master Instructor Marty Miller, and here with my dear friend, Miss Wendy Batts. Wendy, how are you today? Uh, living a dream. How are you? Awesome. <laughs> I'm sure you got your coffee with you ready to go. I for do. That. Awesome. Excellent. Excellent. Well, <laughs> The good news, Wendy's, we are starting another series. We've gotten such great feedback on the series. So this was actually uh, feedback that we got from, I wouldn't say multiple people that uh, are regulars here on our Master Instructor Roundtable. So we are now gonna do a series on squats. So part one is the title here is Deconstructing a Squat. So Wendy, you wanna kind of take us into what this session is gonna look like? Absolutely. And to your point, you know, thank you guys for reaching out and letting us know, you know, topics that you would like for us to cover in more detail. So we really do appreciate that feedback. So really excited. You know, we're going to today kind of look at what we normally do and how we would start this series of thinking about the assessments, what we notice, and then, you know, kind of go through common overactive muscles, underactive muscles and common compensations and things to think about while you're squatting. And then when we go into part two, again, we're going to go into common flaws and some very, you know, variations, and then we'll finish with some program design. So we hope that not only will you enjoy today, but the next two weeks to come. And uh, if we go ahead and kind of look at the introduction slide next, um, as you can see, we're going to be going over the anatomy of a squat. You know, of, again, thinking about who should do them, some advantages and some disadvantages of squats, which if you're doing them incorrectly, there are some disadvantages. Um, we will hit on form and technique fundamentals. And then, like I said, we're gonna identify some common flaws via just the assessment process. So we will go into some different flaws next week, but um, you know, we wanna make sure that we give you some supplemental exercises to think about today. So therefore, if you do start to see these assessments and you really want to perfect the squat that you guys can maybe start implementing some of these as well as when we put them into more of an actual program for you later on. Yeah. So, and, I'm sorry. yeah, no, go as ahead. As you know, whenever I go to the gym in the morning, I'm always thinking about, you know, what our topic is and it, you just things pop out in the gym. And <laughs> But also last night, one of my uh, boys one of the twins, you know, he's starting to work out again. And we, we had this conversation about, you know, how to do things. Is there a right and wrong? And, you know, I, I was looking back, like, you know, coming through the power lifting and all that. I was like, man, do I wish I really knew how to squat properly years ago when I first started out. And, you know, we always were wondering, is there a right way to squat? Is there multiple ways to squat? And we now know there is a proper biomechanical way to squat. So I'm excited to go through this series and hopefully help people, you know, really have a better understanding of what we mean by a good squat. Yeah. And I think we've come a long way because, you know, when we think about our coaches, I know when I was in, in high school, you know, you go and you work out with your team and, you know, squats was a very important exercise that we had to do, especially for what, what I was doing. And, you know, there were a lot of cues that I still remember to this day that they said were, you know, this is the fundamental way of doing it correctly. This is how the power, you know, Olympic lifters and stuff like that do it. And now that we've really looked and, you know, and researched and studied so much on biomechanics and anatomy and how the body works as an actual unit, it makes so much more sense now. While, oh, I, when I was doing this, I'm like, man, this hurts, but I could go low and I could, you know, squat heavy. So there is something to say about just being able to do the movement. It's just, what did it do to me now? I'm I'm a broken mess. <laughs> so, um, but uh, you know, let's go into. Um, why don't you take us a little bit into detail about just the basic anatomy of a squat, Marnie? So if we go yeah. to the next slide. So 
I always say um, to young personal trainers or personal trainers I'm mentoring or people that come to our courses is a lot of the terminology we're going to use is just common terminologies within the industry. But we got to really look at the movement patterns. You know, we I don't perform exercises. I perform movement patterns that we call a certain exercise or, you know, muscles. It's like, you know, you're doing movement patterning. So when you look at the movement pattern, a squat is triple flexion or triple extension. You're going to bend at the ankle, which is dorsiflexion. You're going to bend at the knee, which is knee flexion. And the hip is hip, hip flexion. Then you're going to drive out of that into plantar flexion, knee extension, and hip extension. That is a squat. Now, when we look at that, okay, what are the prime movers? So the main focus that we want to do when we're squatting, now that doesn't mean these other muscles aren't working and they're not working you know, at a very high level within that sequencing pattern. But the prime mover that we want to be doing a lot of the work, the majority of the work is the glute max. That is your prime mover into hip extension. So yes, it's okay that your quads are working. And yes, we'll talk here about the, how the calves are working. I kind of touched on it. I'm gonna let you think about that for a second. But the key thing is the main focus, the main muscle that should be carrying the biggest amount of burden from the prime movers. We're not talking about stabilizers and neutralizers and all that. Obviously, there's gonna be a lot of muscles that are holding body positions in place, but we're talking about what is moving me into triple extension from that loaded triple flexion. And it's gonna be the glute max. So, but again, remember, it's not just one muscle that's doing that. So when I go through that triple flexion, triple extension, where people are like, wait, what did you put in there about like the ankle and the calf complex is when I squat down, I'm going into what we call closed chain dorsiflexion. A lot of people, when they think of dorsiflexion, they put their foot up in the air and they go from plantar flexion to dorsiflexion. That's absolutely correct. But as I'm squatting, the lower I get into my squat, we'll talk about depth later, is my foot and ankle and shin are getting closer together, which is dorsiflexion. So as I come out of that, I have to be going into more plantar flexion. Now the foot's still going to be always fixed on the ground, but the angle of that motion is increasing, which is plantar flexion. So the calf complex is a prime mover into triple extension. We tend to focus on the glute, but we wanted to talk about the quad because obviously what's going to extend the knee is the quad. What's going to extend the hip is the glute. What's going to extend the ankle is the calf complex. But the glute is a fascinating muscle, how it can affect uh, the whole lower body. So just kind of going over the prime movers and just wanted to make sure that people understood it is a total body exercise in many ways. But the prime movers, we're going to look at the ankle, the knee and the hip. So, Marty, there was a question that came up. We'll go ahead and answer this because it's a good question. And there is some research to show. And again, we're talking just about prime movers. But why isn't the adductor magnus? Um, and I'm I'm guessing he's specifically asking about the posterior fibers of the adductor magnus. Why wasn't that included as a prime mover um, in this webinar specifically? Yeah, that's a great question. So when we're talking about prime movers, we're talking about the ones that we want doing the majority of the work. As it, before that question even came in, remember I said there's going to be stabilizers and neutralizers, and I could have said synergists as well that help. The adductor magnus, absolutely, the posterior fibers will help extend the hip, but it's not supposed to be the prime mover. So that's where we're getting here. You know, instead of listing all the muscles, we're listing the major muscles, hence the term prime mover. So yes, the adductor magnus will do that. But the key thing is, and this goes back to my high school days, I remember squatting and two days later, I'd be like, oh, my legs are so sore. And I'd reach up under my glute, deep under even my hamstring. I'd be like, I thought that was a cool thing that I was sore there. 
that was a bad thing. That showed me that my adductor magnus, the posterior fibers had to help more than they should have. I overtrained them. I should have been feeling more of that. Again, we're not saying that you want muscle soreness, but I should have been feeling really the fatigue right in the glutes. That means that they were doing the majority of the work. So yes, there are other muscles that would be synergists in this, but we want to keep the focus on those prime movers. And if you're doing that, the synergists will naturally help, but they won't overtake the motion. But ironically, when we get into the compensations and you see somebody squat and you see faulty movement patterns, that is telling you that some of these other muscles are working too hard. That's why you see faulty movement patterns. All right, good. Hopefully that helped answer some, some of those questions that were coming in. And then, you know, of course, we have safety considerations and we have it with a question mark. And the question mark is, you know, to, to Marty's point, we want to really focus on prime movers. We want to try to make sure we get full available activation of these muscles by making sure that we've got ideal movement. And, and again, when, when you read other people's comments and, and research and you're reading things in, in magazines and you're reading, I mean, there are, you have to really kind of think about what are they looking at and what is the positioning and how deep does somebody want to go? I mean, we're looking at just a basic squat. We're trying to think about proper alignment to reduce the stress of a joint. And so I think that's the biggest thing too, is we want to try to make sure that we've got optimal link tension relationships, which just means that the muscle is in the proper length firing the way that it was intended to fire to get optimal movement patterns for certain fundamental movements, such as the squat, the, the hinge and all the different patterns that we've discussed in previous webinars. Yep. And so when we're talking about safety con considerations, cause we're going to hear, and some people are going to talk about, well, what about bringing your feet out? I mean, and we've said this before, what's, what is the purpose? What are you trying to do? Are you doing it for a sport? Something completely different. So we're just talking about in a gym, trying to get prime movers to focus. So when we go through this series, we want you guys to keep in mind the five kinetic chain checkpoints. And if we go to the next slide, that's what's kind of bringing us into that. Yeah, um, if I can add one other thing sure. too, when I think about the adductor magnus is the first key word is adductor. Right. Okay? So that, the, the way the muscle is labeled is telling you its primary function. So when you look at if we, you know, ideal motion is not to have the knee or the, you know, the, the body adduct during extension. So just the name of the muscle alone tells you that it shouldn't be the prime mover of hip extension. Yes, it will work, but do we really want to be in an adducted position, not biomechanically sound in that neutral position when we do that? So that's why, again, we are focusing on the glute max. And oftentimes, and, and, and you'll see this when people are doing planks and doing other things, when they want to bring their heels together um, and to get a really good squeeze when you're telling someone to, you know, draw in or brace, depending on how, what, you know, what you're teaching your client to do at that time, maintain proper alignment and squeezing the glutes. Oftentimes when the adductor, especially the posterior fibers of the adductor magnus wants to, to really squeeze for the glute to help get the, the actual, what I call a wink and get that glute to look like it's really, really firing. It's more of the adductor magnus at that point than even the glute max firing. So, you know, so that's something to look for when you're doing some of these different, different movements is, you know, why do we always teach the five kinetic chain checkpoints? Well, we do that for a reason. Um, and that's our primary reason. And so, you know, we're just trying to think optimally what's the safest way for the joints. And so when we go back and look at the five kinetic chain checkpoints and you think of the way that our body moves, you know, especially when we're looking at it from a lateral view, we want those parallel lines. And yeah. the reason why we focus so much on, you know, trying to maintain certain positioning when you're just doing an assessment just to see what's happening and and looking at fundamental movement patterns, if 
you have parallel lines from a lateral view that's really going to help with weight distribution between the ankles and knees and the hips. And so therefore it's sharing the load. You're going to be able to lift more. But yes, if your feet are straight, you're not going to be able to go down as low. But what is the reason for the, the depth that you're trying to achieve? Because, you know, if it's it's butt to the ground, um, which, you know, what's the point of that? First of all, second of all, you will have to go into a posterior tilt the deeper that you go. And we do have a slide specifically just on depth. But, you know, we're just trying to say, can they go, you know, to chair chair height? That's an awesome way of teaching someone who's a visual learner of how deep you want them to go. And if they can go deeper because their body will allow them to do that with ideal movement patterns, they're keeping the parallel lines. Some people, they can do that a little bit lower than a chair. Some people cannot without compensation. So, you know, we're just looking throughout the entire movement pattern where do they break, meaning where does a compensation occur? And at that point, you would stop them right before there or before that point. And, um, you know, I think if, if you do that on a training standpoint, then later on when they go to their sport, they're going to have better execution no matter what position their body's going to be in to perform whatever it is that they're trying to achieve. Yep, absolutely. Yes. Well, there you go. So I agree. how about that? <laughs> well, if we move on to the... To the next slide. This is going fairly easy. All right. I like it. Um, I, can, I can throw some questions in there if you'd like me. To. <laughs> oh, no, 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 no need. But, um, you know, Marty, I, I know that you and I see this often, you know, when we talk about common technique flaws. Now, again, we're just talking about working out with your client, trying to realign the body into proper positioning for better execution. So again, we're not talking sports related because we do understand Olympic lifting will have different patterns and movement of a squat. So when you're just thinking about this, oftentimes you're just going to see someone approach the bar. They're going to have their feet turned out. They will arch their back. Some you're going to look to see if people's knees add up, meaning come together um, or, you know, shoot in. Uh, an excessive forward lean. So we're going to go through some of these specific um, assessment uh, kind of notes that you're going to take and what that looks like. And then, as I said previously, the depth, you know, do they go, have a posterior tilt because they may have gone too low? Do they have an anterior tilt because they um, their hip flexors are too tight or maybe they don't even come out of hip extension at the top of the squat? And, and neck extension or a forward head. And oftentimes that is because that's how they were taught not necessarily, you know, how they would normally squat if they knew something differently. So, um, you know, common things to look at. And, you know, we're going to go into more detail as we move on in the next three weeks, but especially today of, well, okay, if you do see these things, what, do, what are we going to do about it? And how can we help fix some of these compensations that we see often? Yep. And it always comes down to quality over quantity. And that could be either range of motion or the load. And again, I was in the gym today and, you know, I just can't help but watching what, you know, what uh, people are doing and the exercises and, and then I, and I see the biomechanics and it always comes down to people are doing more quantity than the quality. Now, again, I understand that not everyone has the background that we all do here uh, in, you know, that are on the webinar today, but you know, th that's how they judge the success of their program is how much weight did I move or how much how hard was the exercise? And, and that's not the way the body's always going to respond the best. And or what happens 5, 10, 15 years later or days or weeks later when you are overloading the structural system incorrectly and creating bad biomechanics or 
reinforcing bad posture and movement patterning. So that's why we are always going to reiterate the same thing. It's going to be the quality, not the quantity. And quantity could be the volume and or depth or range of motion of an exercise. Very much so. Well, let's look at some of the common compensations that we, you know, obviously you're probably going to see. And when we do our, our assessment, that's why we do our assessment, because we're going to know what, what are the things that are going to be movement patterns that their body is automatically going to go to. So if we go to the next slide and look at the, um, the first one, I think we're talking about feet, um, yeah, feet turning out. So we're starting from the bottom and the way up. And, you know, once again, when we're doing the assessment, we would have the shoes off. Therefore, we can see what's happening at the foot and ankle complex, as well as the arches of the feet. Overactive muscles, if they do turn out, would be the calf complex. More specifically, um, the lateral gastroc, so the outer calf, and then the short head of the bicep femoris, um, which, again, because it crosses the knee joint on the outside, it can actually pull it into um, external rotation. And the TFL is are the big you know, big hitters, if you're trying to foam roll as well as static stretch, the overactive muscles that are commonly associated with this compensation. And then you're going to perform some activation exercises for the ones that are allowing this compensation. And so the, the think about the opposite, opposite. So the medial, which that's misspelled. So sorry about that. Medial gastroc, as well as the uh, medial hamstrings are going to be the areas that we're going to focus on um, in order to try to activate those muscles and try to work on that compensation specifically. Yeah, and, and I want to reiterate this, and when you should feel bad for my son, Tyler, he asked, he's like, can I get to the gym with you tomorrow morning? I'm like, first of all, I go at six o'clock in the morning. He, he agreed, <laughs> and I said, you really want me to take you, right? It's awesome. I can't wait to take him, and he wants to learn, right? So I'm excited about that. But boy, oh boy, is he going to work differently, right? When he when I get him in his form and technique and his posture and everything, right? So I'm excited about that. He may not be after tomorrow, but I regret. But the key thing is, just because we're attacking movement dysfunction doesn't mean we can't give somebody a very good exercise program and have them work, right? You're, you know, we can still execute the exercises incredibly well, and someone can still work as hard as when they're doing it incorrectly. It's just, we are always going to go to the point of we're trying to fix movement compensations during so that we can, they can press even faster or have less setbacks. But please don't think that when we list all these muscles, that the exercise programs are boring. No, they're incredibly challenging appropriately to the person, but we just have an eye on what they need to train, not just let's train them randomly and potentially feed into those compensations. And there was a really great question that Mark just asked too. And I know there was somebody that was asking about sumo squats. So I will definitely go back to that one as well um, because we're definitely going to hit on that next week, but we will go ahead and answer the question this week as well. But Mark asked, um, you know, about activating the medial gastroc. And there are multiple ways of doing it. The way that I, I personally do it, and Marty, I don't know if you have a different way, is like when you're doing a standing calf raise, mm -hmm. you would get in the five kinetic chain checkpoints, and then all you would do is you would you would um, bring your toes in. So you would actually take your foot and turn your feet inward, and then you would actually come up onto your toes, really focusing on coming over the, the great toe or the big toe, and then slowly lowering back down. And so by doing that, again, you're being very specific on the muscle that you're targeting. So it is more of an activation exercise and you would just go through and repeat. So you'd come up for one, hold for two, slowly lower to try to get the medial gastroc. 
to uh, to fire. So therefore, the entire complex hopefully will work together and stop allowing that lateral one to take over. So foam roll first, and then at that point, go into the medial gastroc activation. So hopefully that helped answer the question. And then I'll go ahead and answer this one as well. And Marty, um, you can follow up on, on that. But somebody was asking about the sumo squat. And if the legs are wider than hip width apart with the toes pointing out, you know, is, is that something that, let's see, um, I tend to avoid that with my clients. Um, and I would say, you know, at the end of the day, that is a very, very good thing to do is try to avoid them. And the reason you were saying is because, you know, people are using it to work the adductors. And when you think about this, if my feet are wider than hip width apart and my toes are pointing outward, then you are not working your adductors. You're actually stretching your adductors and you're doing more of, um, of a just a movement stretch because the adductors actually will adduct, which means bring your legs inwards and internally rotate. And so if you are externally rotating and then going and abducting, then you're not really uh, shortening that muscle and making it your prime mover. You're actually shorting the abductors and putting them in a shortened position. And so that's why when you're doing a sumo squat, when people start saying, man, I really felt my adductors, I loaded them really heavy. Well, it's because you actually stretched them and then loaded that with a weight. So you did a weighted stretch exercise and also put a lot of compression as well as activation in your piriformis, which can affect lower back as well as your sacrum. So um, it is an exercise I would tell you, tell you strongly to think about the purpose of why you would do it. I would strongly suggest not doing it personally because of that reason. However, if there's ever a time that you need to in Olympic lifting to go lower and to lift heavier and a wider ba base of support, that is why people do that. Um, but if you're not training for that specific sport, meaning you're not their coach, I would train them in ideal alignment because that way you're firing the prime movers of a squat, as Marty mentioned, which are the quads and the glutes. Mm -hmm. Yep. That's exactly the same explanation I would give. Yeah. Very good. So hopefully we are, I'm trying to take some of the questions as we go. So yeah. that way we don't lose them. Um, so let's go on to the, the next um, way when uh, the next compensation. Marty, you want to talk about this one? Sure. Well, I guess this so, is correcting it. Sorry. Yeah, so <laughs> What we're going to do is we're going to also give you just a little bit of how to solve for those problems. So obviously, anytime you see them, at, just continually remind them to keep their feet straight, whether they're doing a tricep rope push down or, uh, you know, a bicep curl, standing at the water fountain, right? Get that, you know, repetition, repetition of getting their body to understand what it feels like to have their feet straight. You know, then the other exercise you can do is bridging exercise to get those glutes involved. There's a lot of variations, of course. Balance exercise with the foot straight and the five kinetic chain checkpoints in order. Make sure they keep a nice little arch in their foot. Everything else in great posture. And then medial hamstring curls. A lot of different ways you can do it. We both like the ball. We don't have a picture here. You wouldn't be able to see it. Is Instead of just even the feet being straight, you would internally rotate, point those big toes together, and really have them activate the medial hamstring. What I tend to see when people do any hamstring curls, prone, seated, or even ball, their feet go out. So you're again, remember how I said you can make this a very challenging workout, but feet out of the compensation are correct. But if you don't correct those feet and you just are focused on everything else and their feet start to turn out, you've now allowed them to get stronger with their feet turning out. So that's where the, the point I was trying to make is just always correct, keep them working to the level they can handle, but just get them to move better. 
and make sure that you're targeting the right muscles. Yes. <laughs> you agree. I, I do agree. And Mark, to answer your question, so where do you draw the line between a wider stance to compensate for poor femur torso? I think it's supposed to be ratio in a, in a sumo. I mean, just think about ideal or you know ideal alignment that we've been talking about just for proper movement mechanics. So the five kinetic chain checkpoints. So when you're thinking about where your feet are in relation to your ASIS bones, which are just the bones in your hips, you want to be about shoulder to hip width apart with your, your toes pointed forward. So don't externally rotate your feet and don't go too far out, you know, unless there is a purpose. So I, if you want to really focus on really trying to drive the prime movers, then if you stay within kind of that guideline, then, you know, I mean, if they're a little bit wider, it's probably not the end of, you know, like, it's not like you're not going to compensate. Just look for the parallel lines, know the depth that someone can control and keep those toes pointed forward and you shouldn't have any issues. And Wendy, one of the things that I've learned on this topic is the focus is when people want to do more aggressive or loaded type of squats, it's like, but let's not forget we have corrective exercise and stabilization endurance first. This is where you clean that up. Mm -hmm. So by the time I get to strength endurance, I shouldn't have to worry about well, do I let their feet go out or I've, I've fixed it. Mm -hmm. And we will go through some other exercise versions next week that the person can still be squatted. They can still be doing challenging versions of that. And you don't have to worry about that. But remember, if you're putting them in the strength phase and they haven't earned the right to get there, that's where we start to talk about, well, how do I, like, well, how much compensation do I allow? Well, none, because I did four weeks of stabilization endurance training and fixed it all. Good points. <laughs> So now if we go in and we think about the, uh, the, the back. So we're thinking about the, uh, the low back arch. I think that's our next one. So if we look at the anterior pelvic tilt, um, you know, so overactive muscles, I know that a lot of this is reviewed for many of you. So we appreciate you guys keep coming back, but we really hammer these home because the hip flexors are so overactive and so many different, um, you know, whether it's somebody that's super active and is running all the time, the hip flexors are, are constantly, you know, being used or they're in a seated position all the time. So it doesn't have to be someone that's sedentary. It can be someone extremely active that has a low back arch. And these muscles are, are primarily the overactive muscles. And then when we think about, it, again, the underactive muscles, and when we talk about underactive, all that means is where the muscles that we're allowing those compensations to occur would be your anterior core. Um, so basically your deep stabilizers in your, in your core muscles, as well as your hip extenders, especially the big one, the glutes. So, you know, if you have a low back arch, you lift really heavy, then you're actually putting in, and especially if you have a bar on your back or you're weighted and you're going through and adding even more compression to the spine with a low back arch, then you're putting so much stress and compression on the erectors and then putting even more of a strain on the hamstrings and really not activating the glutes to their full potential. Again, they will be working. They're just not working as as ideally as they possibly could with neutral alignment in the hip. Yep. And that's where, you know, every one of your clients, we're going to be working on some type of hip stuff as well. So if that's why you'll see us always having bridges or our squat to rows in there to get those glutes firing the right way. Absolutely. And loosen up those hip flexors. <laughs> I mean, especially the psoas that connects to all the lumbar spine. So when that one's, think about that one, it's super overactive and you don't get any kind of length, then it really is hard to get someone to cue or, or get out of this anterior pelvic tilt. So some, you know, different exercises to think about some coaching cues um, that we'll discuss next. 
would be the five kinetic chain checkpoints. I think you're going to see that on all of them and really try to focus on teaching someone how to go into an anterior tilt and how to go into a posterior tilt and teach them the difference so they get a good feel. Someone with a, a, a big anterior pelvic tilt, even when they go into a posterior pelvic tilt to them is actually neutral because they're, they may be really, um, <laughs> really arched forward. So really trying to get them to feel the difference between, you know, too far forward, too far back, and then trying to find the happy medium. And I know we've got different cues. I use the happy cat scared dogs. And I think a lot of people use the pail of water. Water goes out the front, out the back, and you're trying to keep it level. You know, make sure that when you're talking with your clients and that you have these cues, it's cues that are good for you, that you constantly say. So it's not like, oh, I'm going to use Wendy Q today and Marty's Q tomorrow because that one client's like, wait a minute, you said yesterday it was a scared dog and and you want me to scare a dog and now you're telling me to pour water out my back or you know or whatever it is. So just find whatever works for you. Find where you feel um, your clients will understand. Teach them that during the assessment. Once you've done the the you know gotten your results and and you should be good there. Um, but that's when we talk about the neutral spine drills. What we're what we're really trying to uh, to kind of focus in on. And then as you can see, as Marty said, bridge variations, you know, on the floor, on the ball, as they progress, you know, going into, um, you know, maybe even putting their feet on the ball. The one thing about that one, and that one's one that I see done incorrectly often, is when people start to do it, to try to get too fancy with the bridge, their hamstrings are really what they feel more than they do the bridge. And that is actually a muscle that we don't want to fire because we want to focus on the glutes. So we want this to be very glute specific. If they feel it in their hamstrings, their feet are out too far. So a cue that can help cue out of that would to bring their feet back closer to their glutes. And you need to regress that exercise if they can't cue out of that. Um, so, so just some things to think about there, different planks, of course, really trying to focus on those core stabilizer muscles um, within. So the ones that are protecting the vertebrae, opposite arm, opposite leg raises, as well as anti-rotation presses or power presses, um, you know, depending on what you like to call them. So. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. And so unfortunately, another common compensation that you will see um, is, you know, when you're when you're having someone squat that does not have ideal movement. So if we go to the next slide. Oh, the knees moving in. Marty, seeing how you just talked about the adductors, why don't you take this one? <laughs> I, I chose these pictures uh, purposely because, yes, this is what you see. And, you know, when we were talking about the adductors and things like that is like now you see why we're really not trying to make sure that those are, you know, the prime mover, as you could see in those pictures. So when the knees go in, um, as you'll see here in the list, we listed, you know, what the common compensations come from things that you guys have seen frequently, you know, what muscles overactive. So if we can bring the list back up, I want to make sure that um, everyone can see these here that, you know, you're going to see that there's the calf complex. It starts. And I, I read in one of the comments earlier, you know, ankle mobility is key. Absolutely. Everything starts from the ground up. So you have to have that ankle mobility. Short headed bicep femoris. Once again, as Wendy mentioned earlier, will actually rotate the lower leg, which then concurrently allows the knee to go into that adduction and internal rotation or internal rotation. The TFL IT band, Wendy talked about it, it's a hip flexor, but because of its attachment to the IT band, which crosses the knee, when it's overactive, it has that ability also to make the knee cave in. 
And then obviously the adductors, because we're in an adducted position. So then concurrently, what are the muscles allowing it? So I just went through the muscles that cause it, what's allowing it to allow that, that bones and the joints to move in a faulty position would be the glute max, because that's supposed to stabilize the knee, the glute medius, because it's an abductor. So if I'm going into adduction, my abductor is not playing well, and the adductors are winning, drawing that part of the leg in towards the midline. Medial gastroc, because I'm going to have that little bit of external rotation. Or if you look at the top picture, you'll see the young man there. Uh, and hopefully the pain is just for the weight that he's lifting, not what's not in the joints. I'm just, you know, we don't know. But look how that right foot's, his right foot's actually rotate a little more than the left. And that is very common. So part of that could be that lateral uh, gastroc. And so the medial gastroc would be underactive. And then again, the medial hamstrings is what's allowing that lower leg to turn out would be the medial hamstring because they have a component of internal rotation. So this is why, again, it's so important to know what we're trying to accomplish, progress people to these heavier loaded uh, exercises in the right amount of time once they're moving well. Yes. And even in the bottom picture, I think it's interesting because, you know, uh, it kind of looks like this person has an anterior tilt. And usually when you go that low, people will go into a posterior pelvic tilt. And so you're like, wow, okay, that's pretty interesting. However, if you look, especially on the right side, you're going to see that there's a lot of pronation going on. So where they're getting it is going to put a lot of medial stress on the knee as well. So, you know, when we're looking at this, you've got to look at it at all different angles and think, okay, you know, what's causing it, what's allowing it? Because remember, the knee kind of follows the, the ankle or the hip. It kind of, you know, whatever those two say do, you know, then the knee is is what it, it just takes the breath of, you know, the brunt of, of of just bad movement patterns and things not functioning right, especially in those those specific areas. And so, you know, as as we're going to follow suit here, that some of the, the cues that you can use and some different exercises that you can do if your client, um, you know, has this particular uh, compensation. It's going to, I know, eventually start with the, you know, your five kinetic chain checkpoints, right? Okay. <laughs> so, Erica, we can go to the next slide, please. Um, you're going to see, well, shockingly enough, five kinetic chain checkpoints. And then, you know, and you can see that these exercises, guys, they're really not changing too much. When you see these common compensations, there's a lot of the same muscles that are causing and allowing these movement um, patterns. And so bridges, again, trying to get the glutes to fire, glute medius activation. So as you can see, the lateral two walks, I'm a huge fan of those. I'm a huge fan of uh, wall slides um, with, with or without the ball, um, you know, and then single leg balance. And you can do single leg balance with reach. So. Once again, you've got to think if someone, when you're doing balance exercises, you're really, really focusing a lot on the arch of the foot. And if you've got really good foot ankle arch alignment, you're going to have better results of what's going to be happening up the chain. There you have it. <laughs> and then there, there, there's definitely another compensation we wanted to discuss next. Um, I think this one's probably going to be the, if I'm not mistaken, the excessive forward lean. So this is actually when someone said ankle mobility is key. Mm -hmm. This is a key one here because unfortunately, you know, I, ideal movement, again, you want to have approximately 20 degrees of dorsiflexion. And, um, and so when you're thinking about that, if somebody doesn't have that because their calves are extremely tight, you will notice that their feet will turn out. Yes. 
But if you actually keep their feet straight and they still don't have that, because remember when they turn their feet out, they're trying to get a little bit more motion in the ankle. It's what they're, they're striving for by utilizing other muscles that are not ideal for that movement, it's that specific movement pattern. However, when the calves are tight, what ends up happening is people are like, they go down and then once their ankles kind of lock up because they don't have any more to give based on these muscles that are showing to be overactive here, then what happens is they're like, look how far down I can go and they keep going. So it looks like they praise you. So you'll first notice that all of a sudden everything is moving and then all of a sudden the ankles stop and they continue to fall forward. And so the overactive muscles that you're gonna focus on would be again, the calves and the hip flexor complex. And no shocker that the underactive muscles are the glute max, glute med, the core, as well as the anterior tib. And so you guys can kind of start to see there is a common theme here. And with a squat, and we put this on the first slide for a reason, the prime mover are the quads, yes, as well as the calves, yes, but then definitely the glutes. And if they're underactive with all of these compensations and you really don't stress on proper activation first, and then you have your squat or your client squat, they're not gonna have very good success. So not saying that you can't integrate squats into your exercises, we're not saying that. We're just saying, if you see these things, as Marty said, this is what you're gonna do is kind of your extended warm up to try to get proper activation for better movement patterns later on. And then you'll pick the right exercise of the ones we'll show you next week. So now you gotta come back next <laughs> week. So that way you're still squatting, it's just maybe you're not squatting without you know a modification. Very true. And so common, you know, like our queuing. So when we think about the queuing here, um, next, it's going to be five kinetic chain checkpoints, I'm sure. And then, um, you know, yep. And then there you go. And so as you can see, the squat to row, uh, you know, Marty, you, Marty and I both like these. The reason why we use the cable guys or anytime you use tubing, anything that's going to allow you to be able to shift your weight forward a little bit, you're just stopping your client looking for those parallel lines. Again, just for weight you know, equal weight distribution, but that helps give you a little bit more dorsiflexion. So when you're working on someone's mechanics of a squat, when you actually have the the weight in front of you, it's going to allow, it's going to, it's actually going to help you try to find that proper alignment as you're working towards doing this on your own or before you start to load it with any type of, of, of you know, implement such as you know, a, a, a cable. So whether you're using a bar, you know, any kind of kettlebells, whatever it may be, this is a good way to teach someone proper mechanics that is really struggling with some of these compensations. And, and another one I'll do, which we didn't put in here, it just kind of dawned on me now is it was somebody that's fitter and, you know, maybe just a minor compensation, even just holding out a 10 pound dumbbell or a plate. I'm not giving the 10 pounds to load the squat. I'm giving them the 10 pounds out in front of them to force core activation, which mm -hmm. is part of why they might lean forward, deep core intrinsic stabilizers. And then also it's a little bit of a counterweight that just makes that the depth actually get better because it's loaded. You mm -hmm. know, and again, I'm not loading it to overload the glutes in that. I'm loading them to offset body weight in case you don't have a cable system and or get the core to for, be forced into firing. So there's a, a lot of different ways you can use that science to, to your advantage. Yes, work on the posterior chain for sure. <laughs> for sure. 
And then one that we couldn't leave out, again, we're going to look at the neck. And so if we go to the next one, when you're thinking about neck extension or a forward head, um, the overactive muscles, and we say like a forward head, basically, you know, their, their neck is jutting forward. The sternocleidomastoid is a primary overactive muscle, which is this big hunker uh, muscle right here on the front of your neck. Um, because, you know, you've got to think it, uh, it pretty much covers the entire front of the neck. And so, um, you know, it's, it's one that can, can commonly cause these. So if we go back to the slide and you really look at some of the underactive muscles here, um, you're going to think, okay, you're going to have to really start to focus on, you know, deep cervical flexors and trying to get those muscles to activate just for proper, uh, neck and, and head alignment. And then there's something called the pelvic pelvo-ocular reflex. And Marty and I have talked about this, I think only once um, mm. in previous webinars, but this is extremely important to talk about, especially during a squat. And once again, it was because I had a coach that said, hey, I want you to look up and spot something and focus on that, you know, whatever it is on the wall while you're doing this squat. And so it would put my head up in an upward position. I could focus on it and then I would do my squat. Those are common cues, unfortunately, that my coach taught me in the past. However, what you're really wanting to think about is that the eyes and the chest follow each other. And so you're trying to maintain that proper alignment and keeping the head in line with the torso, because as soon as you look up, then your hips are going to have to adjust to, to the positioning of your eyes and your head, because there's a reflex where it works together. And that immediately will put you into an anterior pelvic tilt. And as we talked about, and as you guys saw with the compensation, if you have an anterior tilt and you're squatting, because you're just looking up, the, the compressive forces that you have in the lower back are not ideal, especially when you're loaded with a bar on your back. And so just try to think when we say eyes, you know, keep your eyes in line with your chest. That's what we mean. Hopefully you're not rounded forward and your head's not falling forward. That's not what we mean. So that's why when we always say common cues, the five kinetic chain checkpoints, as soon as you see this guy look up, then say, okay, see, see my hands. I want you and give them the cue. Don't touch their face. Just say, see my hand. And then just bring their, their, their eyes down to where they're in line with their chest. So from a, from a side angle, everything would be in, in proper alignment. Beautiful. Thanks, man. <laughs> so common cues here. So I, again, think about what I just said, the five kinetic chain checkpoints. And then Marty, if you want to go ahead and finish up with, with that one. Yeah. So again, again, as Wendy said, whatever cues you're giving them, keep it consistent. So, you know, always keeping that chin tucked, then eyes in line with chest. And again, you would have worked somebody towards this. So it's, you were just not going to throw them into the squat right off the bat like that. So a lot of the supplementary exercises, again, their head and neck would be in the right position, of course, are different protraction exercises, band pull apart, whether you're standing, lying uh, on, the, on your back, face pulls where you're using a band or a rope you know, to get that posterior chain activated. Cobras are phenomenal chin retraction. So if I'm doing a bridge, I even have the person when they're lying down, make sure that their head and neck are neutral and that chin is tucked. So it's, they're doing 10 or 12 bridges. They're getting that isometric contraction the entire time. Planks with mini bands, plank walks, anything that keeps their head and neck in that tucked, nice neutral position. And then also how they sit at their desk right? I have a standing desk. I make sure my desk is elevated. So I'm not dropping my head all day long or shooting my head forward. So again, there's other ways that you can really work on that head and neck positioning. And then Eric, if we can go back one slide, please. Um, there was a question that came in from Aaron and Marty, I'll let you take this because he asked, you know, so this dude, 
so this dude on this dude, basically what's bad is it because his head goes up. And so Marty, when you look at this guy, what do you see? Well, from this angle, you know, you can't quite tell where his feet and ankle are. You know, it looks like he might be a little bit actually rotated. Can't quite tell, but you know, in the low back, potentially could be a little bit of an anterior tilt again, not at that clear angle, but clearly um, he's got his neck in an, you know, in a, in a bad position. He's, you know, coming backwards, he's got his head up. So that cervical spine is definitely not in a neutral position. Knowing how the whole spine works together, if his cervical spine is not in a neutral position, I doubt his lumbar spine's in a neutral position. He looks like he's fluid. It looks like he can get into that range of motion very easily, but that still doesn't mean that that's proper biomechanics. And then Marty, can you please explain again how the tight calf complex could be responsible uh, for lack of ankle mobility in a squat? Yeah. So when you look at this individual here, if you look at his ankle, that is a dorsiflex position. So the lower he goes, the more dorsiflexion you need. You need at least 15 to 20 degrees. Most people won't have that. So his foot's going to spin out into the frontal or transverse plane to looking for extra range of motion. So that's where that calf is going to be, comp uh, you know, when it's restricted, is going to cause that restriction. As they come out, even though the foot stays on the ground, as you come out of dorsiflexion, you inherently have to go into plantar flexion. So every inch he comes out, he's moving into plantar flexion. Every inch he comes down, he's moving into dorsiflexion. The uh, calf complex would restrict dorsiflexion if it's tight because it's a plantar flexor. So that's where we need that good mobility in the plantar flexors, which is the calf complex. Very well done. Nicely done, Marty. You explained it great I the first try. time. You spent it great the second time. We should be good there. <laughs> I try to be consistent. I try. I know. Mark, if, if you have any other questions about that, let us know. So if we go to the next um, the next slide after that. Um, so that causes lateral movement. That was his question. Mm -hmm. Yes. <laughs> so then, um, and we, we touched on this before, and, you know, you got to think about the depth of a squat. And, you know, again, a lot of times people have competitions, how low can you go? And that goes back to what Marty and all of us have said multiple times, and even someone agreed in the comments, quality over quantity. And you've got to think, what is the outcome that you're trying to achieve? It's to try to get your glutes to the floor because you're teaching someone how to get up and down, you know, like how low can they go without falling over? But you've got to think that at a certain point, you're going to compensate. And there are some specific ones that we've actually listed here. And we're going to talk a little bit more about pistol squats next week. But you've got to think when you do a pistol squats, there are a lot of things that have to happen. You know, it's basically you're going to end up kind of falling onto the leg that's that's, you know, that you're squatting on basically because of the positioning. You're going to have to really lean forward for balance. And on top of that, you have to have really good flexibility and good strength in the hip flexor complex, which is often overactive, which, again, with an overactive muscle can lead, you know, will still be weak. And so you know, you want to just think about just what is the outcome? What are you trying to do? Are you trying to do a pistol squat to show that you can? Because you have to have really good balance, really good dorsiflexion and really good um, flexibility and strength. They're extremely difficult. So I'm not saying don't ever do them. It's just what is the purpose of it? And if you can execute it and you have good alignment, good form, and you're you just want to do them because you love them, then all the power to you. But just know that the deeper you go, a posterior pelvic tilt will have to happen. So as you can see in this individual right here, plus on a balance standpoint, to make sure you don't fall over, you will lean forward. And yep. so, you know, just some some things that we wanted you guys to 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 keep in mind when we talk about this. And so if we go to the next slide. 
and we think about putting in all, all of this stuff to, you know, together again, you're going to see when we say, you know, coaching cues and different exercises, it's mainly one of the things to focus on is just teach someone how low you want them to go, look for parallel lines and then go from there. Because, you know, a lot, a lot of that is just cueing. They think that you want them to go deeper. So they're like, look how low I can go. They're trying to please you as a coach. And so just say, you know what, that's great. Don't go quite as low. Let's stop here. You know, I want you just to focus on this range of motion. But, you know, th that these are some different exercises that you can use. So as you can see, there's a lot of consistent exercises that we use here just on a correction standpoint. So if we go to the next slide and look at, you know, kind of everything all together here. So our key takeaways, you know, know the muscles that you're targeting and why, you know, so think about movement patterns, think about, you know, ideal execution. Assessments are key because if you start to see compensations, you're going to note that you're going to want to really focus on that foam rolling, stretching, activating the underactive muscles before you get them to these movement patterns and the resistance portion of that workout, you know, focus on those movement patterns or the, the bad ones and then try to get proper activation so they become good. With every exercise, regress when needed. And then just remember the model. Remember the, the acute variables. Think about proper exercises that are going to be beneficial for your client. Don't get too creative in the beginning. Keep it basic because what's basic to us is very important to them. And then as they can show that they, as Marty says, earn the right, then make them more, more challenging each and every time. But always think about, you know, tempo, because anybody can do an exercise. It's just start with some tempos, start with proper alignment, and then you should, you should do well. <laughs> I couldn't agree more. And then the cool thing is next week, we're going to go over common flaws and then dive into some of these squat variations that we hinted about today. Yes, very much so. And so, uh, yeah, Marty, I mean, those are the, the you know, I'm excited about next week. Yes. Uh, and uh, I'm excited about part two. So hopefully, again, you guys join us next Thursday at three o'clock Eastern. Yep. It is weekly. Somebody asked. So yes, indeed. Mm -hmm. And yes. all of our previous ones can be found on the Facebook page. And anywhere you download well. yeah, as anywhere you download podcasts. <laughs> Awesome. Well, if we want to get to our, we're getting at the top of the hour here. I know we want to be consider everyone's time. So if you want to maybe show our contact information, that way people can get a hold of us and we'll scroll through, see if there's any other questions. Wendy, why you're giving your information. Yes. So if you guys have any specific questions, you want to email me, my uh, email is wendy.bats at nasm.org, or you can find me on Instagram at wendy.bats13. Excellent. And then my mind pops up here. Someone did ask about uh, shoulder positioning and they have a current shoulder issue because of some, maybe some of the squatting um, patterning that they had done in the past. It's very possible that's where it started or has been a contributor. I probably, my assumption is probably not the only reason, but go back to your assessment, go back to all your movement compensations and that their answers will lie within there. Yes. <laughs> and then my information, you can get me on Instagram at dr.martymiller72. And then my email is marty.miller at nasm.org. So, Wendy, thanks so much for another great week, great uh, amount of information. And we will be coming back, everybody, next week on that next level, num level to, uh, number two into the squatting progressions. We look forward to seeing you then.